This is Tamsin Webster, author of Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Tamson Webster to talk about her book, Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible, published by Page Two. Tamson Webster has spent the last 20 years helping experts drive action from their ideas. Part message strategist, part storyteller, part English to English translator, her work focuses on how to find and build the stories partners, investors, clients, and customers will tell themselves and others. Tamson honed her expertise through work in and for major companies and organizations like Johnson & Johnson, Harvard Medical School, and Intel, as well as with startups that represent the next wave of innovation in life science, biotech, climate tech, financial tech, and pharma. She's a professional advisor at the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship and a mentor for the Harvard Innovation Labs. She's also served for over eight years as executive producer and idea strategist for one of the oldest locally organized TED Talk events in the world, TEDx Cambridge. And interesting fact, she is a graduate of the oldest private school in Virginia and the eighth oldest in the United States, Norfolk Academy, founded 1728. Tamson, congratulations yes. on Find Your Red Thread Thank and you. welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast and go Bulldogs. Go Bulldogs. Go yes. Bulldogs. Yes. <laughs> That's, so uh, where I am in Norfolk, if you're a Norfolk Academy grad, mad props to you. So. <laughs> It's a big deal. <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'm always, I, I'm never sure how proud Norfolk Academy is of the fact that I went there, but that's all right. Oh, no, I'll no. It. it means a lot to me. Both my kids graduated from there, so uh, I'm hooked. And uh, that, I, when I learned that, you told me when we were uh, at a party in Cleveland at <laughs> Content Marketing World, and I turned to your husband and said, Tom Webster, you married well. Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> Yes. That's right. Marry a bulldog, marry yes. a diamond. Yes. That's right. <laughs> so listen, folks, uh, for all you unmarried folks, I, this is th th all this marriage advice, free. There's no charge for it. So, <laughs> no, yeah. Absolutely. So this is scheduled to be episode 339. And, That's awesome. Congratulations, Doug. Oh, my pleasure. I love doing this. Uh, I interviewed your husband, Tom Webster, for episode 11 
in oh my gosh, 2015. Just when you're babies, both of you. <laughs> and it was for the mobile commerce revolution, which he yeah, uh, co-authored yeah. with uh, Tim Hayden. Sure and did. believe it or not, you are the second spouse I've interviewed on the Marketing Group Podcast. What I mean by that is the first couple I've interviewed, I had interviewed Scott Stratton a couple times, and then I oh, later yeah. got to interview his wife, Allison Stratton, about, uh, for her, it was the the book Unbranding. So Yeah. So, you know, she's amazing. Love them both. Yes. Oh, I can imagine. You must run into them uh, on the speaking circuit all the time. We do. Yes. And so I met you about 10 years ago, I think. Not that's probably true. After you and Tom got married, I was at a conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. Oh, right. So, was oh gosh, was that Bolo? I mean, yeah, yeah, it must have been. Yep. Yeah. And uh, Tom spoke there, and I met you, and uh, anyway, been uh, fans of, of both of you for, for a while. And one other thing I have to mention, and I know this will make you, you know, blush or uncomfortable, but you are so generous. <laughs> and I'll give you one example, folks. About a year ago, uh, so you've got to check out everything that Tamson does, you know, the videos she does and her blog, and I'm going to have links to everything, but on her YouTube channel... And on her blog, she has deconstructed certain presentations and shown some things that could be done to make them better. Well, one day, clearly in a moment of weakness, <laughs> on social media, she said, hey, does anybody have a presentation? I want to do another video. I'd like to deconstruct it. And I think I was the only person that happened to respond that day. And sure enough, you did a wonderful video about a presentation I had done, and it had such great advice. And I changed it up, and I've already implemented the changes you suggested, and it made a dramatic yeah. impact. So thank well, you very much. I appreciate that. You're so welcome. Yeah. You're so welcome. So I wanted to read a couple of excerpts from the beginning of the book to set the stage. And the first one is, at the beginning, you write, this book could have been one sentence. <laughs> the best way to make your idea irresistible is to build the story people will tell themselves about it. In fact, if you already know how to do that, or if your idea is already irresistible, you can probably stop reading now. I'm grateful you picked up this book, but it's not for you. If instead you see that your idea is so powerful that it could change a life, a market, or even the world, but others don't see it yet, then I wrote this book for you. I wrote it for people like you who want their idea to impact the world. I wrote it for people like you who value the possibility of their idea so much that they see it as bigger than they are, who are willing to put the idea first. I wrote it for people like you who, despite their motivation and willingness to do the work, struggle to communicate how irresistible their idea really is. And then there's just one other thing I want to mention, because, you know, for that doubting Thomas that's out there, <laughs> not not Tom Webster, but for yeah. someone who's listening, <laughs> sitting there with their arms crossed, thinking, oh boy, I don't know, you've got to listen to this. I've tested the approach you're about to learn with hundreds of ideas and hundreds of clients, including the most skeptical and story-phobic. I'm looking at you, scientists and engineers. (laughs) I've taught it to thousands more. People have used the red thread method to build communications as varied as these. Marketing messages and materials, strategic sales conversations, pitches and internal presentations, public presentations like keynotes, breakout sessions and multi-part workshops, fundraising asks, books and online content. The results? My clients and others have used the red thread to raise millions of dollars 
for their research or for their startups or other organizations. Dozens of companies have used it to frame the basis of their internal and market positioning. It's also provided the starting outline for multiple books, including bestsellers, and for hundreds of presentations that range from internal update meetings to keynotes and TED and local TEDx talks, 10 million plus YouTube views and counting. So yes, it helps you get the impact you envision for your idea. So, Tamson, can you take us back? And when I say back, I mean like even before the founding of Norfolk Academy in 1728. <laughs> yes. Which, for those playing the home game, that's four years before George Washington was born. And I know mm. the people in the UK are laughing, but that's old for the US, okay? It is, yes. Take us back to Greek mythology and talk about uh, Thesis and the Minotaur and the, the origin of this uh, ball of red thread. Yes. Well, once upon a time, uh, there was a young man named Theseus, and he was the son of the king of Athens. So uh, it was his duty and his privilege and his honor to do whatever he could to, to preserve the future of the city he would eventually one day uh, take charge of. Uh, but there was, of course, a problem, and the problem was that Athens, every seven years, had to send its best and brightest to the island of Crete to be d devoured by the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull monster uh, that was, and that sending these young folks there was this tribute that that um, Athens had to give to the King Minos of Crete. Um, and if they didn't, King Minos would come and attack Athens. So really it was a question of, do we kill Athens slowly by sending the best and brightest, or do we kill Athens quickly by not sending them at all? Well, one year Theseus was in the group of folks that had to go to the Minotaur, and he decided this was the year it was going to stop. Uh, and so he tried to figure out how he could succeed where so many others had failed before him. And the secret really lay not so much in defeating the Minotaur, which was important because the Minotaur would kill you, but in the maze that many, many folks had overlooked. And that's because in a lot of ways that the Minotaur lived in this pitch black labyrinth, as so it said, uh, that the Minotaur itself could not escape. Uh, and he realized that, that as the son of the king of Athens, that even if he did defeat the Minotaur and didn't defeat the maze, that he would not have fully succeeded. So in other words, the maze was just as important as the monster. Yeah, like so getting he, home, yeah. Yeah, he had to get home. And so what he did that no one else had done is he brought a tool for each task. Now, in the book, I kind of underplay the role of Ariadne, who was a woman he eventually completely screwed over. Um, but she was the one who equipped him with a sword to kill the Minotaur, but also a ball of red thread, so it said. And the idea was that he would unwind this ball of red thread as he entered the labyrinth. So he could use it in the pitch black to uh, find his way back out again. So he would use it to trace the path that he took to the Minotaur and then follow it back out. Uh, he was successful, both at keep defeating the Minotaur and navigating the maze. Uh, and he was able to uh, take his rightful place eventually as the king of Athens. And mm. that's how the story goes. Yes. Yeah, so you write that your idea, back to ideas, is your new way to slay a monster that needs fighting. Mm -hmm. Explain. Yeah. Well, a lot of times, so in my mind, an idea is an answer to a question that hasn't been answered satisfactorily yet. 
Uh, and oftentimes when we have an idea for a product, a service, a brand, what, you know, just an idea, uh, it's because in that moment we're like, oh, that is how I am going to do this thing. Um, it's how you slay the monster of a problem that hasn't yet been solved. Um, the challenge, of course, is that, uh, as I describe in the book, we sometimes think that we just find that answer, but in fact, our brain has built that answer and it's in the building of the answer lies the secret to making that idea irresistible to everyone else. Mm. And that may be why I read your book very slowly <laughs> because it was sort of concentrated. In other words, I, I would read through, you, you explain how to do most everything and but it requires a lot of work. So I was writing down quite a bit as I read the book. I hopefully, that, that, in fact, I think you, you told the reader, stop, yes. write, write this <laughs> do down. This thing. Yep. Yeah. And so it really got me uh, engaged that way. So it was a, a different reading experience. And I'm going to be spending more uh, time with the book, as, as a matter of fact, afterwards. And you know what? It brought to mind a little bit of the, um, the Story Brand book by Donald Miller, yep. where yep. I, I read that. And then spend a lot of time with it, trying to perfect our story, um, but also better understand uh, how the elements fit together. And I have found that storytelling, uh, of course, it's a term that uh, a lot of people don't understand or don't understand well yet, but it can be kind of complicated. And I'm, mm. it was for me, it was a bit like uh, sometimes it was like diagramming sentences in English class where, <laughs> where it was like, yeah, yeah, I think I got it. I mean, it's a sentence. But anyway, so th your approach made it clearer for me. I, hmm. I, it, it, I understood it uh, better. And I'm a slow learner, uh, Tamsin, oh, so <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I had to laugh, though, because you write, okay, so we talk about an idea. And it doesn't just drop from the apple tree like people think it did for Isaac Newton or right. uh, Archimedes in his bathtub. You're right. You have an idea, and your next step is to let people know about it. But that's where the trouble starts. Yes. <laughs> All right. So let's let's explain. Oh, are you describing a monster? Yeah, explain. So what happens is that our when we have an idea, like as I said, like with the, the as I say in the book, the ideas aren't found, they're built. They're built piece by piece. Our mm -hmm. brains are creating uh, an explanation, a rationalization, in other words, a story, uh, to which our idea is oftentimes the logical conclusion. So it's like, what's going to happen? How do I solve this problem? Oh, this is how I solve the problem. And that moment that we find that idea is the moment where we feel that flash of insight um, and or that recognition that, oh, maybe this is the thing that I finally figured out. The challenge is, is that that often is a long and involved process of what's happening in your brain and it's subconscious, the, largely, largely subconscious. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, and we're unaware that our brains are doing that because a huge portion of our brains building these stories around us are, uh, is, is pre-conscious um, and automatic. And that's one element. The second element is that we nobody knows the inside of our brain better than we do. And what I mean by that is whether you are someone who has an internal monologue or not, and by the way, some people don't have that, you think you're having a full conversation with yourself, but you're not. And if you don't have an internal monologue, then this is even more true for you, where things just feel right, right? And so what happens is like something could make complete and perfect sense in your head. 
or if you've been talking it through again in your head, um, well, let me ask, have you ever had that experience where something made perfect sense? You thought like in your head when you're like saying it to yourself in your head that it was going to be awesome. And then as soon as it came out of your mouth, you're like, that was not awesome. That was terrible. Has yeah. that ever happened to you, Doug? Well, I'd say on a daily basis. Yeah. And <laughs> listeners would probably say for each episode, yes. Yeah, so Yeah, funny. Um, but they're sticking with me, so. Excellent. So glad. But that's that's what happens is that there you know the the word how we think about something is fundamentally different than how we talk about it, and it's and you but it's in the words that we use to describe it that our idea depends because if somebody else doesn't understand what we're saying, they don't understand why it's relevant, they don't understand why it's important to them, if they don't agree with it, then that big beautiful idea in your head just isn't going to survive. And so the the problem starts the minute we try to explain. And especially if we haven't stopped to think about how can we explain it in a way that someone who is not us can understand and agree with it. Right. And you talk in the book, I don't, I can't find it just now about how words are actually poor clothing for ideas. Oh, they're what, well, they're, they are. So Agatha Christie's uh, quote is that words are only the outer clothing of ideas, okay. uh, which which I love, which I think is it's a it's a wonderful mental image and one I use with my clients often. Um, that said, they're a very poor proxy for your ideas, yeah. uh, meaning that they there's no way that your that words and the way that we construct them and the way that we as humans hear and understand them uh, can ever fully capture this this full idea of the idea that we have in our own heads because people cannot see the out of you know they cannot see the world the way that you do because you know your eyes may look out but behind your eyes is these are these big beautiful brains and that idea is fully formed behind your eyes and mouth but the minute you put it out there like someone can't get into your head and so we just have these words. They're the only thing that we have to rely on, really, um, to 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 communicate that power. And oftentimes, it's not that the words themselves are not enough. Is that we just most of us haven't learned how to how can we find and then structure those words in a way that it's most likely that someone else will understand our ideas. And that's really what this what this book was meant to help solve. Right. In one part, you write, many ideas fail because we are trying to tell people how to slay the monster, but we're telling them as someone who has already navigated the maze successfully. Yeah. Now, you write, uh, I spent four years as the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, the oldest and one of the largest locally organized events building on the TED Talk brand. As part of that role and as part of my current one as the event's idea strategist, I review aspiring speakers' applications. Right at the beginning of that application, speakers have to answer this challenge. Explain your idea in a single sentence of 140 characters or less. Tamson, what tends to happen? <laughs> it's usually not 140 characters, I can tell you that. Um, so a couple of things tend to happen. Uh, one is we get titles, like snappy taglines, instead of an explanation of the idea. That's one thing that happens. Uh, second, we get a lot of jargon. We got, get a lot of words that we don't understand. Uh, third thing that tends to happen, this can go on a big old list. Um, <laughs> we, you know, somebody tells what the idea is, but not why it's relevant. Um, or somebody, you know, or the, probably the last most common, the next most common thing that we see is that someone tells us what problem it solves, but doesn't actually tell us what the idea is. 
So they're like, you know, a way to do X. Okay. What's the way? Um, so it's, it is a, it, it, this is one of those places. I mean, it really was in this difficulty that people had in answering this question that, that so much of my curiosity about this started. I just really wanted to know like, like what would be, what would be a satisfactory answer to this? Like, what is it that a human is look, looking for? Like, what is it that, you know, I and Dimitri, the executive director of TEDx Cambridge, like, what is it that we need to hear? What needs to be in that sentence before we can understand enough to even be curious about what somebody's idea is? And how is it that I can help other people get to that point? But it's a, it is a, it's a rich pageant. <laughs> <laughs> the, answer, the answers that we would, we get and still get. And I hear actually this from podcasters who get pitched um, by guests or people who are in the position of having people pitch their podcast to them, just how awful people are about describing why it is that they should be on a show or why your show would be good for them. It, it is a very, it's a really prevalent challenge, I think. And so it's one of the, it's really one of the reasons why to me it was so important to get the book out there. Interesting. You know, there were a couple lines from the beginning that just really struck with me. And I just want to share along the lines of, you know, slaying the monster, but we're trying to tell someone how to navigate the, the maze before that we've already gone through. You write, there's a, a big difference between being told something is the right answer and discovering it for yourself. And that was so applicable to any kind of workshop mm -hmm. I've done or teaching where it's, I think even Marcus Sheridan will talk about, he talks about it as the Columbus approach. <laughs> you can't tell them, you've got to do what you can to help them discover it. And you also write, people don't just want the answer, they want their answer. <laughs> they need to find their own way to your idea. If you give them a red thread, that's exactly what they'll do. So, we're supposed to give people a guide through a maze we have traveled through, but we don't remember, and we can't see it. Talk about how story is the map for getting through the maze. Well, it's back to a little bit what we were talking about earlier, Doug, which is how our brains make sense of information and how much of that is pre-conscious. Mm -hmm. um, I, I cite in the book that Gerald Zaltman of Harvard Business School says that 95% of our de uh, decision-making is, is pre-conscious. Um, and there's wonderful work by an author named Kendall Haven who wrote a book called Story Proof and actually another one called Story Smart, both of which are great, where he assembled very much like all the academic research on story. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I see as quite different in my work, um, though related to folks like Donald Miller and Nancy Duarte and other folks who, who put such a, a wonderful emphasis and explanation of storytelling, is that really what I discovered in doing all this is that the stories are important, but one of the significant reasons why stories are so effective is because of how they're structured. And so really, as much as, you know, it, it's, this, my book is about storytelling, quote unquote, it really is much more about story structuring mm -hmm. because that's how we make sense of information. Um, you know, when I was talking about you know, us building that's ideas. That's how the brain and, wants to process yeah, the information. Right. And I think it's, you know, I think an open question. And if I ever go get my doctorate, I will want to answer it is, you know, did stories that are once upon a time stories have these elements because that's what our brain needed, which is what I suspect. Mm -hmm. Or did we kind of just learn to look for these pieces of information because stories were so pre prevalent? Um, I think the only way it makes, seems to make sense to me is for there to be for the brain to need a series of cause and effect relationships in order to explain a thing. Um, 
but that's really what it comes down to is, you know, our brains are constantly building these, you know, I refer to them in the book as brain stories, but they really are just explanations, rationalizations. They are these kind of loose structures for why we convince ourselves that something makes sense or why things work the way they do, whether that's people or the world or, you know, interactions or whatever. Um, we come to our own conclusions <laughs> and they happen to take story structured form. Like they don't, they're not necessarily, well, once upon a time X happened, but we do think of how the world works in terms of, you know, of characters in terms of motivations, you know, this person's altruistic or this person is villainous. Um, and as, as a result of cause and effect, and those are all the elements of any great story. And so once you understand that underneath any kind of story, so, you know, hero myth, um, you know, even Donald Miller story brand, whatever, underneath that kind of story exists these elements and, and that, all information passes through them, those elements in order to be understandable, you've got a really powerful framework for making sense of your own idea, for making it make sense to others, for, for building once upon a time stories, for telling them, et cetera, and for really helping to you know, do something I do often with my clients, which is decode why a particular explanation, presentation, pitch, conversation, story, or whatever isn't working. Because you can go back and look and see where are the elements out of order? Is the structure sound? Uh, is there something missing? Uh, because usually that is the root of why something doesn't make sense. Mm. Well, back to my uh, issue of diagramming sentences, <laughs> um, which is a good thing, kids. You should all you know work on that. But at one point in the book, you you mentioned like uh, I think it was Joseph Campbell's you know hero monomyth, and I'm. I tensed up a little because <laughs> I think that has, I don't know, what, 17 or 29 parts. And I'm thinking, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And then I my body language changed because you said, you know, I looked for the a good model and, and I just couldn't find one. So, I built my own. <laughs> and then you explained these these five steps. So, it... You had me at that point when you said, all right, no, that's 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 probably more than you need. So I was thinking like these five parts are almost like an operating system from which you can have any any number of those elements from Absolutely. Our, yeah. yeah. That is and that's often how I refer to it. I think, you know, we um they are there are the they are the lines of code that create our operating system of of, of us as humans. And um every story, no matter what kind of story has these five elements. So it, if you, if you are a fan of the hero myth and you should be, because you know, it is one of mo most common kinds of stories that are out there, uh, never fear because these five elements are in any hero myth. Mm -hmm. Uh, but also, uh, as my friend, Dick, uh, Dr. Nick Morgan would tell you that it's not the only kind of story, you know, as Nick talks about it, there's love stories, there's rags to riches stories, there's stranger, strange land stories, there's revenge stories. All of these can be really powerful, um, explanations of how things work and why they work and also powerful structures for books and talks and those kinds of things. And all of them have these five elements. Mm. So what's, what's, what can be fun for the marketers and the content creators that are listening is that once you have these five elements and you identify them in your idea, you can actually start to play with, okay, I've got these five elements. How could I tell it as? Mm -hmm. A hero myth? How could I tell it as a love story? How could I tell it as one of these other types? And that's where you can start to have a lot of fun with those pieces. Because 
it's kind of like how, you know, if you, and I think I mentioned this in the book as well, that there are, you know, they, they, I forget the author, but there's seven, you know, there's, it's said that there's seven basic plots. And if you talk to, you know, Kurt Vonnegut talks about, you know, six story shapes. And that was validated, by the way, by the University of Vermont, who also found there to be like six common shapes of stories. But all of them, all of them still have these five elements. And so to me, when I, you know, I just you know, tested it and sorted it and like, you know, tested it against how our brains make various kinds of decisions and why and how and tested that against, you know, all the things I could get my hands on for script writing and story writing and screenwriting um, and novel writing and, and nonfiction writing. I was like, you know what, these five things are in both kinds of stories. So let's start from there and let's, these are the building blocks of an idea. Right. And you did mention that, I think it was the very end of the book and I can't find who said it, but that, uh, I, that really, uh, struck with me. Well, let's talk about those five in the in the the, the remaining time we have. And I'll, I'll just read from uh, page 28, where it's the high level. It's the goal, the problem, the truth, the change, and the action. So what uh, let me let me frame that a little bit more. Establishing a goal, the action of a story begins when we would discover what someone wants. Mm-hmm. And then introducing a problem someone didn't know they had. This creates conflict and tension, which is the engine of all action. And I got to say, that just screamed out sales <laughs> or effective uh-huh. sales to me, yes. sales, business development. Discovering a truth that makes inaction impossible because it puts the goal in jeopardy. In stories, this is often referred to as the moment of truth, the midpoint, or the climax. This discovery forces a person to choose something. How many marketers, and particularly salespeople, their biggest competition is no action, status quo, Oh, so the the fourth one is deciding to change. This is what happens as a result of the truth, and it determines whether or not the ending is happy. And the last one is turning the change into action. This is what someone does to make the change real. So you write that when you know what someone wants and what what they really want, you know where the story starts. So say more about the goal statement. Sure. So the goal statement is best thought of as a question that someone is asking right now and for which they haven't found an answer for themselves yet. And in fact, by the way, (laughs) my definition of a big idea is the answer to a question that someone is asking but hasn't answered for themselves yet. Um, Because any idea that satisfies some quite open question like that that's important to someone is a huge idea to that person who needs that answer. And you know what? Let me just interject. I mentioned a friend of yours. Mark Schaefer seems to write a book when he can't find the answer. And something torments him, and that's how he knows he's onto something. It just popped into my head. Oh, I think that's where all great ideas come from, mm. is you go out there and you look for an answer and you don't see one that satisfies you, so you go until you until you find one that does, mm-hmm. um, and t- until you find one that seems to make sense based on how you see the world. So the thing with a goal, with a goal is that you know, in, st- in Once Upon a Time stories, you know, there's always... Um, there's always a hook, right? There's always, you know, sometimes it's referred to as the inciting incident, but there's always this moment where something happens that really starts everything. And 
we may not realize it consciously as readers or viewers or listeners, but it's in that moment that, that we, the audience, realizes that the main character wants something that they don't yet have. So, you know, one of the examples I give, and this isn't always, by the way, right at the beginning of the story. So sometimes there's context that gets set up, but we don't really engage until we know what it is that somebody wants. So the example I often give is, you know, if you're familiar with it, let's say the Harry Potter movies, you might be interested as to why a wizard is walking down the street right at the beginning of the movie uh, and leaving a baby on a doorstep. You're curious, but you don't start to care until that moment you realize that there's this, this young kid living under the stairs uh, who is with a family that does not love him for what he is and who he is, and that that's all that he wants. He wants a group of people where, you know, a place where he belongs and where people love him for who and what he is. And, and as a viewer, you realize like, you may not realize it consciously, but you're looking at this guy and going, he, he does not have what he wants. What's going to happen? How is he going to get it? How is he going to get it? Our brains are finely attuned to that kind of hook. And it's particularly true if that thing that that person that we're talking, you know, that we're that character, the thing that that character wants or that question that that character has is a question that we ourselves have that allows us to identify with that character. And because we want to say, okay, well, all right, this person clearly wants to belong somewhere and be appreciated for who and what he is. Maybe you've experienced that yourself. And so you watch that movie, you read that book to discover, you know, your brain is kind of trying to figure out, is there a, is there a better answer than the one I found so far? Mm. And so when you're building a message for someone and where you're building the story of your idea, we kind of shortcut, I shortcut that, the, the, kind of the idea of finding the goal questions, shortcut straight to that by, by anchoring your idea in that question that that somebody is asking of themselves. And it may not be the deep question that you know they're really asking, but it is going to be something where they're, if you suggest to them that you're going to have an answer for them, well, they're going to want to know. Because one thing that is absolutely true about humans is that people do not readily unwant the things that they want. And so if you can anchor your idea in something that they already want, but don't yet have, well, then you've got just as powerful a hook as the hook of your favorite book or movie. So is it what someone wants deep down inside that they may not quite realize, or is it more no. like the inner monologue you were talking about, what they're telling themselves they want? It's it's the inner monologue. It's the thing that they're Googling. It's the thing that they are getting uh, hired or fired for. Uh, it is, it is, because it, it is, here's the way I explain it. And I don't know if I say it in this, this in the book or not. I think I do that. You have to solve the problem that someone thinks they have before you can solve the problem. They know they have. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And the thing is like the reason why you need to start with a question that they would admit that they have or one that they're actively seeking an answer for is because it's immediately relevant to them. Mm -hmm. You know, the thing is that, and this is not a thing I talk about in the book, but curiosity is a curve. It's a it's an upside down U-shaped curve. And the way it works that if somebody doesn't consider themselves to be an expert in something and you present to them something on that, they are negatively curious about it. I mean, I think it's human <laughs> ego at play. They're like, I don't know what that is and therefore I don't care. And yet that's the opposite of what we try to do a lot of times in marketing. We try to like say, here, here's this new thing. 
But if that new thing isn't immediately tied <laughs> yes. to something that somebody wants, they literally don't care. They 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 anti-care, like they yes. negatively care about it. Like all those spammy messages I get. It's like, I, <laughs> that's yeah. great. I don't yeah, care. I mean, and, and it, they don't care. They're, and like this, the whole idea that they're negatively curious like, blew my mind when I found that study. But then on the other, so in the middle, it peaks up, right? And the middle is someone knows enough about something that they want to know the answer, but they don't consider themselves to know enough that they already know the answer. That's when it's positive. That's where curiosity happens. That's the magic middle. I know enough about this thing that I know what you're talking about and I don't know the answer. And so I'm therefore curious. And then the thing to avoid is the other end of the, of that curve, which is when it peaks back down to negative is where when someone is already convinced they know the answer and therefore not curious about it. So you mentioned sales and I did a lot of work before I started my own business uh, with a company that kind of helped to operationalize the challenger sales methodology. So I didn't work for CEB, but I worked with a company that kind of kind of made like the challenger sales methodology can be a challenge yeah, uh, for people wow. to actually yeah, interesting. And, and it's all, you know, challenger sales methodology for those who are familiar with it is very much anchored in, in the customer's problem. And which makes sense. And, you know, one of the things that challenger says is you got to make the pain of the status quo exceed the pain of change. But one of the most difficult things, and one of the things that I saw when I was doing this work, and still today when I work with challenger shops, is that so often people are starting with a problem that the audience already knows they have. And, like, and, and then they, and that's not a problem unless you treat it as if they don't know about it. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, okay. You know, it's because they'll reveal like, well, the big problem is, and they, and a lot of times the audience was like, I know that already. Yeah. Jerk. Like, <laughs> or do they come forward with problems that they can't actually solve? I, I recall that from the book where you're saying you have to be careful that you, you can, you can actually help. Right. Exactly. And so. Um, so this is where actually the split in the, where, and I was trying to come up with this process, challenger and the challenges of challenger were very much front and center in my mind because like, how do I, how do we engage somebody with a problem that they know they have and yet still introduce something that's different? Um, because the reason why that's so important to split those two things apart is because of that other end of that curiosity curve, which is if somebody feels like they already know the answer they are again, negatively curious. Mm. And so, yeah. So the thing is like, you can't, you have to be really careful with how you frame this question, which is you want to make sure that it is something where, and that's why I come to that language. If you need, it needs to be a question that somebody is actively asking for which they haven't yet found an answer. Like they are trying to find an answer right now. They are they're, you know, it's not a mystery to them. They're actually trying to find an answer. Um, and for whatever reason, they haven't found one that they, they haven't found a satisfactory answer yet. Like that's where you get the magic middle. And that's what you're trying to land on when you establish the goal statement of your idea. So that curiosity curve, folks, that was not in the book. So what yeah. you just heard is a marketing book podcast extra. That's right. Yeah. Bonus, <laughs> you know. Um, and then in the book, you, you go into much greater detail, which I just found fascinating, where you say that you, you have to find out what they want, and we just mm -hmm. talked about that, also what they value, and what they're struggling with. So it was just a layer after layer, uh, just 
this is one of those books where it would be better if you could charge for each time someone reads it rather than just the number of books. <laughs> oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah, I've I've discovered that like if I were to if I were to if I were to do another edition of it in the introduction, I would I would add these instructions for reading it because I've I'm I'm I've discovered this since people have started to read it, that it's best to read it quickly one time through without doing any of the exercises. So oh. you just start to understand how it all comes together. Oh, thanks, then, Tamsin. And, <laughs> I, I didn't no, know. I'm kidding. I didn't know, Doug. I'm I was sorry. following instructions here. No, I no, no. I appreciate That's um, why I think, yeah, so it yeah. was, it was, it, that's a great idea though, because I would pick it up the next day at some point and, and keep reading. And it was like, wait a minute. Yeah. So it would be good to read it once through quickly. And then this is one of those books that's probably going to get rather dog-eared, I think. I from hope your, so. From that your was read. my hope. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, just because of the nature of, of uh, there's, there's a lot uh, to it. It's already marked up a lot. I got Post-it notes hanging out. So the second step of the story is where you introduce a problem that they didn't know they had. So explain the, the, the concept of this. And I, I should add, again, back to sales, there was a book on the show a while back by Anthony Anarino about competitive displacement. Hmm. He, he writes these fantastic sales books. And this was about stealing business away ethically by, <laughs> well, by, by, uh, from competitors who aren't taking yep. care of their customers yep. and who are simply vendors. And this is where you don't come in saying, this is my product, this is my service, do you need it? You come in with this. You come in with this idea that they need to know about that they yes. probably weren't thinking about. So Correct. when you read enough of these books, I, I start I start tying them all together, but not with As you thread. should, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, well, explain explain this. I think it's Yeah, it's, it's I mean and powerful. I love that Anthony Yeah, and I love that Anthony focused on that because it meant that much like Mark Schaefer trying to find an answer and then eventually writing his book, I think, you know, I think there have been a number of us who look at something like that, that whole idea, which is again, actually also in Challenger, which is how do you differentiate on the, what CEB calls with the commercial insight, right? This, mm -hmm. this yes. new perspective on it. Um, and what I saw over and over again, and this was true, even when I worked for Aratium, which was the messaging company that I worked for before I started my current business, um, is that, Again and again, it, there just wasn't an easy way to find those commercial insights. There wasn't an easy way to figure out what is that perspective. Now, let me be clear. I may have found what comes across as a simple way to find those insights. It is not easy, as any of my clients would tell you. I mean, I find that the more that you do it, the easier it becomes. Like I, you know, when I first started doing this five years ago and kind of came up with this approach, um, it was slow. And now I, I see the world in what I call duck bunnies or problem pairs, as I mm -hmm. call it. Um, but what I've discovered and what the problem is really about is that, well, there's, the book talks about this, but it's, it's pretty layered. I mean, the thing is, is that one thing you can't do when you introduce a problem that somebody does, they doesn't know they have is make that person feel bad about it. Right. And again, uh, if we think about how a lot of marketing and sales messaging goes, well, there's your problem. Uh, because we kind of, you know, intentionally or not, uh, sometimes I think the, the feeling is, well, you should have known about this. Yeah, and it brings to mind and, like a smoking cessation yeah. program or a weight loss program telling people they've made mistakes. I, <laughs> I just don't think that would work. 
It, it doesn't. It, it full stop doesn't. It, it engages what's known as psychological reactants in mm-hmm. people. It is. It, it it makes people feel like you've removed their agency. Uh, it makes them feel not smart, not capable, not good, as I like to say. So this is a very difficult and tricky line to walk, where you need to introduce the reason why people haven't solved their problem for themselves yet, while also not making them feel bad for not having seen it before. And so when, when I really went to figure this piece out, like, how do we do this? Because in any great story, of course, once upon a time story, the same thing happens. Like when this, when Harry Potter starts, you know, you know, he, you have no idea about Lord Voldemort and, you know, the, and the, all the negative dark forces that are in play, just like Luke Skywalker has, you know, has no real deep understanding of, of the force and the dark side. Um, this stuff gets introduced to them, but in those classic once upon a time stories, those are the problems that have to get solved before that person can solve the problem they thought they had right mm-hmm. uh, before they can get what they want. And so the same thing is true for your business audience, where we have to introduce the real problem that they have to solve before we can answer their question. Or another way to think about it is like, what is the real question we have to answer uh, before that? Now, the way to avoid making them feel bad about it um, is to actually, rather than go straight after conflict and say, you know, well, here's the reason you're not doing this because you didn't do this other thing is to create contrast first. Um, and to also understand where their behavior comes from right now. So another thing that is true of humans is that our actions are driven by our beliefs and our beliefs are driven by our perspectives and how we see the world. Or as I summarize in the book, how we see the world drives what we do in it. So if you're trying to figure out how to get someone to do something different, which is fundamentally what an idea is about, we actually have to get them to see a situation differently first, because if we can get them to see something differently, then they're going to act differently. So a real kind of simple way to think about this is that, you know, if just the frame, in other words, the lens through which you look at something totally changes how you think about it. So for instance, think of a woman in a bikini, right? That is completely acceptable when it's on a beach, but what would not be acceptable on a beach, it would be very strange and we would consider it to be just not done as if if a woman was wearing a bra and underwear on the beach. Mm -hmm. Or if we saw a woman wearing her bra and underwear walking down the boardwalk also wouldn't be acceptable. And yet, if you think about it, there's really no actual difference in what it what is covered, what is not, except for what we call the thing. We're mm. like, well, that's a bikini and that's underwear. And because we call one thing one thing and one thing another, we our whole perspective around what does or doesn't make sense revolves around that. So really that's what we're trying to do when we're when we're talking to someone about you know, how to start to see their situation differently, where you need to say, you know what, right now you're looking at this as if it's, you know, as bra and underwear. And it makes sense because it's covering those parts, right? But if we look at this as a swimsuit, you know, if we just actually kind of look at it a different way, mm-hmm. well, then another path opens up. And so really that's what we're trying to do uh, is to find that contrasting perspective that first validates how someone sees the world right now. So, you know, for instance, example I use in the book, 
you're trying to figure out how to retain millennial employees, it makes sense that you're focused on like what are the perks associated with your various positions, um, current perspective versus what is a another perspective that they would also agree is true that allows them to see something different than they did before, which is, oh, we focus more on the, you know, for instance, currently we focus on the positions and we do that more than we focus on the people in those positions. Mm-hmm. And, and most people would go, yeah, both are true. But by getting them to look at that, look at that same situation through a different lens, through a people lens rather than a position lens, then a whole different group of potential solutions comes into play. And that's really what the, what the problem pair is all about. Mm. But wait, folks, there's more. You've yeah. got to make the problem impossible to ignore. Yes. <laughs> so talk, that takes us to us next to the next one, three. Talk about how this moment of truth that I mentioned earlier, how does that come into play and, and, and make it impossible to ignore? Well, one of the my favorite words for a moment of truth, and I discovered it in late edits for the books, and I like spatchcocked that thing right into the book as soon as I found it. Um, and I was like, I know we are like basically in layout, but we are adding this thing in. So there's a Greek word uh, called anagnorisis, and um, you know, it dates to dates to the classic Aristotelian storytelling. And it's the moment, it's you know, also known as the moment of truth, whatever, but the way an anagnorisis is defined is it's the moment where the main character recognizes the true nature of their circumstances. So in other words, you know, this moment of truth, and this happens in every, every story, every story, there's a moment where like it is. You, is that you like when you're trying to stage an intervention for someone? Like I, they're I, trying I, to prompt that? Yeah, you're trying to prompt that 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 aha work. moment. You're trying to prompt that yeah that moment that green light moment that you know that holy moment um, where someone goes, oh, I oh my gosh, I cannot stay still. It's the moment in a story. It's a moment in your life where you're where all of a sudden you cannot unhear what you have heard. You cannot unsee what you have seen. The world looks completely different from that moment on. So another time, another word you know, another phrase that people associate is the point of no return. Yes. And so this moment of truth, this true nature of circumstances, and that's really key, um, is that it, it, it is the moment where this is where the true conflict comes in. And it's where once someone agrees that something is true about themselves or about the world um, or about people in general or whatever it might be, the minute they agree with that thing, it creates this mental Oh, <laughs> in their head, because it means that if that thing is true, then given what they've been doing so far and how they've been looking at things so far, it would be impossible for them to get their goal. Mm. Like that's what happens where like, they're like, if this is true and I still want the thing that I want, and if I don't change how I've been looking at the situation or what I've been doing so far, I am not going to get it. That's why it makes the, a, the problem possible to ignore. And it makes inaction also impossible because something has to give it. It has to in that moment. I, I found it interesting that you said you advise don't make your idea your truth. You say you write that the most common mistake in finding a true statement is also the most understandable one, which is 
trying to squeeze your solution, the change, yeah. in as the truth. So what would be a uh, an example of that? Because I could, when you wrote that, I thought, oh yeah, <laughs> we all we all want to jump to our solution. Yeah, but well. Don't. Right. We basically, I mean, so if we were setting up like the red thread of the book, for instance, I say, okay, you've got this question, how can we drive action from our ideas? And we more often focus on what we want to say about our ideas than what people need to hear. So there's that problem pair. Um, if I were to shove my, my idea in as the truth, I would say, and yet we can all agree the best way to make our ideas irresistible is to tell people story they and tell, uh, build the stories people would tell themselves about it. And that's why you need to find your red thread. Like to me, that sounds awesome because I already agree it's true. But you've that, already traveled through that maze. Correct. And that's the, that's the problem is that it, it is not inarguable to you. You don't have enough information to agree that's true yet. Mm-hmm. And, and so the best truth statements are things that people, like as soon as they hear them, they're like, well, of course. So, you know, for instance, you know, back to the example I was talking about before with the positions and the people, you know, if you are focused more on positions than people and you're trying to figure out, you know, how to retain your millennial employees, and then you hear the truth that people are what make positions work, your brain gives an uh uh-oh because you're like, oh my gosh, I haven't actually been thinking about what the individual people in these positions actually want. And maybe that's why I haven't been able to retain them. (laughs) Which brought to mind for me uh, a couple of places I've worked before I went out on my own, where the the owner basically thought of employees as like a a, a new photocopy machine, you know, (laughs) like a new piece of equipment. Yeah. I mean, and and that happens. And actually, it's an interesting side note, Doug, because um, you had mentioned before, one of the things that I talk about when you're finding the goal is, you know, if you're struggling to, one of the things to figure out is, you know, what is something that, that your audience values that you also value, you know, that whole, that, that particular truth that people are what make positions work. It's possible that not everybody would agree with that, but as long as that true statement is the one that your audience would agree with unquestionably and I, and ideally inarguably, like that's what you're really trying to look with. It's not just something that they would you know, not just would they agree with it, but it is, it, is it nearly impossible for them to argue with it? That's what you're looking for. Mm. Um, you know, it's like, so for instance, you know, one of the clients I was working with just yesterday, one of my startup clients, um, you know, we came up with the truth that the best jobs develop desired skills, regardless of requirements. Kind of hard to argue with, right? Like you're like, well, that's true, <laughs> and yeah. that's you want you want to get to the point where somebody's saying, and this is I do mention this in passing in the book, Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference, where someone essentially comes to that and goes, "That's right, not you're right, but that's, that's right. right." Yes, yeah, yes. Where you where you can say you get that anagnorisness where it is that is true, and that moment that it is true. Uh, it creates it creates a schism in your head where something's got to give if you still want to get what you want, and that's what you're trying to like. That happened in your brain when you came up with your own idea. There was a moment where you're like, oh, "That's true," and that's why, boom. And it's it's the the truth is the is the I like to think of it as the it's the inhalation of the breath right before the aha. It's the. <laughs> That's the answer. And it's the, like, whatever made you do, that is the, 
whatever you heard, saw, recognized, or realized right before you went, oh, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. That's usually what created that <clears throat> moment of truth. Mm. But every story has it. And by the way, like I'm happy to get on a soapbox about this one. This is also the thing that most messages miss. And I would also venture to say that most of the fill in the blank story structures out there also miss this. They skip over and kind of go straight to the, you know, and then every, and then everybody lives happily ever after, but they don't actually introduce the thing that created that crisis. And can you make a story work like a messaging story work without, I'm sure, but can you make a story that people can't unhear without this moment? Absolutely not. Like, and if you, if that's your standard, if you want to create an argument for your idea, you want to create a message that people can't unhear, it must have a moment of truth in it. That's what makes it unhearable. Hmm. Yes. You're right. The truth statement describes something that creates an internal conflict in the mind's of your audience. Let's <clears throat> let's go to the next two, the last two, the uh, the change. And you write when you give your audience a choice to not do what you want them to do, they're more likely to change the way you want them to. Mm-hmm. I know. It reminded me of my kids. Right? You know. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. What comes back to what I was saying earlier about psychological reactants, and uh, the thing is. Agency is everything. In other words, people's ability to feel in control of themselves, of their decisions, of their world is the underlying driver of almost all human behavior, right? That, that, that is, and whenever you run a, run a, run a foul of somebody or you get in an argument or your kids push back, it's almost always because something about that, that feeling of agency has been violated. And there is such an easy way to escape that trap of just saying, well, you must do it this way. Because if you say you must do it with this way, our brains are wired to say, no, my, my agency is more important. There's a researcher that calls it the brave heart effect. <laughs> and I love that um, because it's like, you know, you can take our lives, but you can't take away our freedom. And that is exactly what happens when you're like, well, the only way to do X or like, you must do it this way. Or you can't do X. And people are like, well, sure I can. Yeah, I can. You can't tell me. Yeah, you're, you're not, not the boss, boss of me. me. <laughs> right. And so... You're right. If, if people don't feel like they have a choice that they're being told what to do, their natural reaction is to push back. 100%. So you give them a choice. But you've made that choice really hard for them, right? Like if you've structured a story that they would build themselves, that they agree with all the premises, if they agree that they want that goal, if they agree that both lenses through which they could look are valid and true, if they agree with that thing that you've told them that has created that moment of truth, by the time you present them with an, an alternative behavior or an alternative solution, it becomes really hard to say no to it because they've said yes to everything else. So how do you say, yes, I want that. Yes, that's a valid lens. Yes, that's also true. But no, I don't agree with the conclusion from that. It's possible and it can happen. But one of the biggest things, you know, it's much more likely that A, people will come to that conclusion because that's how you've built the story in the first place. But B, when you give them the option to not take it, and with psychology terms, what they call it is they call it an inoculation against reactants. Uh, it inoculates them against that reaction. You basically say, well, you don't have to do this. And yes. as soon as you say you don't have to, they're like, oh, yeah, but I want to. Like, fine. 
<laughs> Far be it from me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's it's one of those things. I, I wrote it recently in a newsletter where I said, you know, it's when we convince ourselves that we are most convinced. Yes. And that's what you're allowing to happen. You're basically saying, I'm not trying to convince you. I am just telling you the way I see things, the way that I reached this conclusion about this idea. And if you agree with how I reached this conclusion, maybe you'll reach the same conclusion. That's mm. that's how it's really, like that really is the kind of the, the, the thought and the thinking that's behind this whole approach. But you also advise, it's so interesting when you say this is what a lot of people have challenges with or, or struggle with, you, people you're coaching or, or who are trying to implement this. You say to give your audience the option of a simple, single change that's consistent with what they want and believe. And you go on to write that, a lot of folks, and I can I completely understand this. They they struggle because they want so badly to introduce all the things people need to do right. to achieve their goal, which I think it would overwhelm them. Absolutely. Well, that's exactly right. And yet, it it feels so lovely when it comes out of our mouths. We're like, "Well, here's everything we do, and here's the seven step <laughs> process for how to do this." But people have one big problem, right? And they want one big solution. And it needs, even if it's not simple in the moment where they're just like, you've just rocked their world with that moment of truth. So they need something that feels that, that gives them closure, that, that something that resolves that conflict in a way that goes, oh gosh, there's an answer. And then from there, once they go, yup, all right. So, you know, the example I've been using all along. So if we can tie these incentives you know, and personalize those incentives to the people in these positions, you're going to raise the probability of retaining these employees. So it's not saying get rid of position-based incentives, but it's about saying for this level, offer these three options. And for this next level, offer these other three options. Now you've got something that's more flexible and, and talks to both aspects. But to be able to go, how do I retain millennial employees? Big, ugly question. And you can say, like, big, nice, big, simple question, you know, answer. Well, try personalizing the incentives to the people in the positions. They go, okay, that makes sense. Okay, thank you. I got my answer. That's the moment where they're like, okay, now how? And that's when that last piece of the red thread comes in. Right, which is the the actions. Mm -hmm. There were three things in particular that folks need to understand and agree with before they'll act on the change. I mean, there's a lot of ideas, but I think it's, it seems like it, one of the hardest things is just to get any kind of starting point or traction or, or getting that action. And you write that it's, you have to explain to them that it's possible <laughs> to achieve the goal. Yep. Okay. That's, that's really, you could have had a whole book on that. It's possible. <laughs> To achieve the goal, they, that, that's and then and then they have it says you your audience needs to believe that it's possible for them to do it, yeah. And then finally, your audience needs to believe that the actions are worth it, which kind of takes me back to that curiosity curve you were talking about, where they're thinking about yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it, it it seemed to, for me to go back to the the issue of the status quo, but if I guess if you've built it all the way up to this point correctly, that's maybe not going to be such a problem. That's right. That's, I mean, that's the whole point of the moment of truth is that it's, they have to either stop wanting a thing or they have to start on, un, start unbelieving a thing, both of which are very difficult, by the way. Um, if, if constructed well, it's very, they cannot mentally return to the status quo. Like something's going to stick in there. 
So ideally, like the way that you've constructed this, like the red thread is designed so that the possibility of it is built in, right? That someone goes, okay, that makes sense. These, I agree, all these things are true. So therefore this is possible. And then comes the, okay, but can I do it? Is it, can, can I do this? And that's where the actions come in because the actions are where you make that change concrete, where you supply the detail that, that takes it from being conceptual to being something that someone can actually do something with, where they can start to imagine in their own mind, okay, what does this look like? How does this operate? And as I say to my clients, they may not actually ever follow your own steps, but they're going to get the idea of how to do this. And they just, they need to give enough of a sense of, oh, I get it. All right. Yeah. Okay. I may not do it exactly this way, but if I flip in this, this, and the other thing, then it's going to work for me. It's kind of like how <laughs> I always laugh about it, but if you ever look at like a, a, um, like a recipe site, let's say the New York Times cooking site, and they give you the recipe and the recipe has been tested. And then you start reading the comments and people are like, well, I did it and sub substituted. And then, then they list like nine different things that they did differently. That's kind of how you want to present your idea. I mean, yeah, there's certain times when in business you want them to go, you know, the only way to do it is with us, of course. But really those actions are the kinds of things that just allow you to be much more specific about what you're talking about so that people get to get to take it from this kind of loose concept and actually start to see it in practice. And it's from that that they can assess for themselves. Well, so is this, is this going to be too much of a pain in the butt for me? Like, you're like, I could, I could do it, but it's too much of a pain in the butt or, oh, oh, that looks really easy. And, you know, maybe it's just, it seems so easy that I might as well try. And one of my favorite examples of that is the, the TEDx talk, very short TED talk, excuse me, it's a TED talk. Um, uh, Joe Smith's how to use a paper towel, four and a half minutes. And, you know, most people aren't walking into the, to the room saying, oh, how can I use fewer paper towels so I can reduce the impact on the environment? What is um, a TED Talk? Uh, is it like $10,000 to attend or something? Well, yeah, in this case, it actually was a TEDx talk oh, okay. that got promoted to TED.com. Oh. But I mean, what, what Joe Smith does in this talk is he presents um, a very simple method for using a single paper towel. Um, and it's what he calls shake fold and you shake your wet hands 12 times. You fold the paper towel in half and you use that to dry your hands. And he demonstrates this like on stage with the audience. So and it, it it's one of those things where you see it, it seems so simple. You're like, okay, well, I wasn't really thinking about this, but, and it's clearly, it's possible. I'm watching him dry, dry his hands and shake fold. I could do that. Is it worth it? Well, it's so freaking easy. Why wouldn't I try? And that's one of those things where like, that's really what the actions are designed to help you do. So let's go back to, let's talk about Tamsin and Norfolk uh, as we bring it <laughs> home here. Now, I seem to recall you said you were in Norfolk because your father was in the submarine force? He is. Yes, I was, I should say. I mean, he's, he's still around, my dad. Uh, but yes, he was in the Navy. He was a commander in the Navy uh, and retired after 21 years of service. Okay, so your approach has just brought something to mind for me, which is there's there's a, a, a training organization you may have heard of called Sandler. They train a lot of salespeople, and I actually, I still attend it. And the model they have for their whole approach, and there's lots of different models that companies can follow, but theirs is a submarine. And the reason they do it that way is it's there are certain like seven steps you have to go through. And you can't go to that second one until the first one is squared away. It's like uh, in the old John Wayne movies where the, 
they, it was taking on water, they would seal off a compartment. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So it's the critical path. Right, right. Path. So it's like, yes. uh, you know, there's, there's pain. And if you don't get pain, you don't go to the budget step. And if you don't get the budget, you don't, you know, onto the, how they're going to make a decision, so forth and so on. You got it. But, but your, your approach reminds me a little bit of that, where it really has to be watertight or as, as much as possible before you yep. can really move on to the next, the next that's thing. Correct. Yeah. So. And that's the thing that I do that ends up happening uh, with my clients. And, and we discovered it. it's a very iterative process because. Yes. You can get to the you can get to the you know the change of the actions and you're like something's not working and then sometimes you have to go all the way back and go where's the leak yes like, where's yes. that leak um, so yes so my father was in the navy so maybe I absorbed this kind of thinking <laughs> um, I was also an organizational behavior uh, MBA is in that so like critical path and you know operations is kind of baked in my mother oh. however was also was an anthropologist um, oh really or I should say is an anthropologist so. You know, I think you take those two things together, like an interest, a deep interest in how people work and kind of contextually what affects what people do from a cultural standpoint and contextual standpoint, and this kind of very systems way of thinking. And it's not really a surprise that it, that you get this book <laughs> from me. <laughs> well, looking back, yes, now it all seems so logical, oh, yeah, much like your approach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Tamsin, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Uh, to make sure your idea answers a question that your audience actually wants to answer, uh, but hasn't answered for themselves yet. But of course, I want to say, but if they're asking themselves, how come they haven't figured it out? And actually, you answer that question in your book. So that's right. Yes. And that's what the problem is all about. There's the, the problem pair is the reason why they haven't answered it for themselves yet. Mm-hmm. Well, what is just one thing a listener could do today just to get started? get that boulder rolling down the hill to to put in action an idea from your book or or something that we've talked about. Well, given given what we've talked about, I would say that the one thing that people can put into play and really start to explore is to find that truth, find that inarguable for your audience. So that, like a reason your audience cannot disagree with that your why your why your idea makes sense. Because if you can find that for your idea, if you can really boil it down to the basic concept where are like, well, this thing makes sense because, and then the because is a, is a reason that your audience can't disagree with, doesn't have to take your word for it. Um, that sometimes can help you reverse engineer into the problem pair. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. And yeah, so you can kind of do them out of order, but that, I, the more that I can get people to start looking for those in their life, that's actually a great place to start is to start looking for and listening for when you hear, read, or see what I would call a truth statement out in the world where, you know, someone just makes a statement and you're like, that is so true. And you're like, well, they just did that. And the more you can recognize them in other messages and content, the more able you are to find and create them in your own. Is, is that like the proverbs that you talk yes. about at the end? Yep. Where they just seem inarguable. That's right. I mean, mm. proverbs are such a great example. Proverbs, idioms, sayings are such a great example of those kinds of things. And oftentimes when I'm suggesting, you know, one of the ways to find your own truth statement is to start with those proverbs. So um, it just happens like a couple different clients this week had some version of uh, yeah, burden shared is a burden halved. Uh-huh. You know, and, and they're, you know, if you think about it, if your message, what you're trying to 
get across is essentially, let's say, an outsourcing message where you're the person to whom you want a client to, you know, to give, you want to be their strategic partner, probably at the core of your message is something along the lines of a burden shared is burden halved, meaning it's going to be easier if you're doing it with someone else. Right. Huh. And if, and if that's fundamentally, and if you can get them to agree with that, and so therefore that's why work with us, I mean, you have to kind of set up the case, why your way of carrying the burden is better, but almost always there's going to be some fundamental reason that is inarguable or close to it, why your idea makes sense. And that, that is the truth. So I would say, look for them out in the wild so that you can find and inspire more of them and your own messages. Hmm. That is so funny. You mentioned that about uh, outsourcing, because as I was reading through the book, I'm thinking about ways that companies can be more effective by owning more of their marketing rather than trying to (laughs) – I see a lot of problems with companies that outsource too much. They're not taking ownership. They're saying, like, leave it at the loading dock. So I'm going at it from the other uh, direction. But enough about me. Tamsin Webster, what books have most inspired your working career? So I would say I wrote a whole post on this. So I do have a post on my website that's like the 17 must-have messaging books. But I was like, I can't tell you 17 on this podcast. Oh, well, I'll include a link to that. Uh, But (laughs) maybe one or two. Um, uh, I would say that the number one book, I'll give you three. The number one book um, for me is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Do you know what? Tom Webster mentioned that when I interviewed him. (laughs) <laughs> yes, he he's the one that got me to read it in the first place. And it is oh. such a great book. And it's I mean, it is that is one of those books that there's so many things in it that you can't unhear. And that yes. if you are remotely interested in how people make decisions, um, you can't not read it. Yes. And, <laughs> and that book has been mentioned so much on this show, uh, along with Robert Cialdini's book Influence. Those those yeah, are probably absolutely. the two most mentioned books. Yeah, I would say that the the other two, and that's and influence is great, by the way. I would say that the other two that I wrote down would be a book by my friend, and one that I mentioned in the book in my book, which is a book called The Proverb Effect by Ron Plouffe about proverbs. That's kind of Ron's book is like a narrative style about proverbs, but it's just it's really useful to understand kind of functionally why proverbs and proverb-like statements, in other words, truth statements, are so powerful, and also how to construct them. Um, and long lived, and long lived, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a kind of a more, slightly more business oriented version of a very similar concept as a book by Bill Schley called the Microscript Rules, um, which is great. And then the last book I would put on this list, one of my very, very, very favorite books uh, by Tim David, uh, is a book called Magic Words, which is just a beautifully simple, wonderful book, um, kind of about that uses seven words as windows for uh, influence and persuasion. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah. So I would say recent book that's already out, Black Sheep by Brent Mensoir. It's about your core values. And the reason why I think that's important for marketers and salespeople to understand is because the way that Brent and I have talked a lot about this, your values are what lead to your red thread and your red thread is what leads to your brand. And Mm. so like, if you, if you are interested by the, about the things that I'm talking about, if you read the book and you're interested about that, but you're kind of curious as to what makes you answer and fill in these blanks of goal, problem, truth, change, action a certain way, uh, go read Black Sheep. It, it will help reveal that 
oh, a bit wow. more for you. Yeah, yeah. That's super. There's a two other ones I'd love to mention. One is probably not expected as far as you know marketing book goes, but it's a it's a book by well, it could a be good friend of book. mine. Yeah, yeah. So a good friend of mine wrote uh, Aaron King uh, wrote "You're Kind of a Big Deal," which I love this, and it is definitely written for like young women. So think like late twenties, mid to late twenties, early thirties, young women, but. Erin, her, the perspective that she takes, it's about really how to, she calls it kind of leading into your audacity to kind of fulfill all of this. She, her, A, her writing is amazing. This is a just, she's a hysterical, a wonderful storyteller and it's fantastic. But the ideas behind this, some of her recommendations are so counterintuitive and brilliant simultaneously that I think that, you know, whether you're a late 20 something woman or not, that there is enormous value in the way that she looks at life. And that's, I think, a thing that people should know about. Oh, wow. Um, I, thank you. I am, as soon as we get off, I am buying a copy and sending it to my 23 year old Norfolk Academy grad oh, daughter perfect. in New York City, who's in her first job after college. And I, I think she'll really like that. Oh, it's yes. perfect for her. The last one is one I just got yesterday. Um, I didn't even really, I, knew, I think I kind of knew it was coming out, but there was this super quiet launch on it. It's a book by Michael Port and Andrew Davis called The Referrable Speaker. And again, it's another one of those, while it's written for people who are speakers, want to be speakers, and how to you know, be a speaker that people refer. In other words, so you speak and people are like, oh, you have to go hire this person. They were so great. I think. It is chock full of Andrew's incredibly actionable models for how he thinks about marketing himself and his speaking business. And again, I think it's one of those that it doesn't take much to map over Andrew's concepts to other folks. And few people know the speaking business and kind of the content and the delivery and then how do you perform a, a talk. And again, you don't think you have to be a keynote speaker to benefit from this, that like Michael Port does. So I'm excited about that. I was just flipping through it yesterday when I got it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. I'm oh, excited. you had me at Michael Port and Andrew Davis. Yeah. <laughs> I so see good. it just came out June 4th. Wow. Yeah, Thank literally God. just came out. Yeah, you're welcome. I was like, what is this? Oh, look at that. Yay. <laughs> just oh. got it in the mail. <laughs> yeah. And I'm such an Andrew Davis fan. Oh, my goodness. That's terrific. Well, super. Well, listen, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, Tamsin's website, and all these books that uh, were mentioned, your LinkedIn profile. And if you, dear listener, would do me a big favor, I'd really appreciate it. Please, please, please reach out to Tamsin and thank her for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Tamsin has spent a lot of time with us. There are over a million podcasts and she's decided to, to be on this one and it'll really make her day. She's been working on this book for a long time. Just message her and thank her. And if you have a question, I have a sense she might actually answer it. So <laughs> do <laughs> that, true. folks. I yeah, yes, yeah. Please. And uh, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is Find Your Red Thread, Make Your Big Ideas Irresistible. The author is Tamsin Webster. Tamsin, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Doug. Thank you so much. 
And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, 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 oh